Hello and welcome to The Wounded Doctors, a podcast series dedicated to the study and improved treatment of wounds. These episodes are brought to you by Convitec, pioneering trusted medical solutions to improve the lives they touch. My name's Rod Murray, and on this episode, we're talking about a subject that even us lay people no doubt think is straightforward. But since starting this podcast, I've been conditioned to realise these things are almost never as they seem. Joining me for a wander into the world of blisters is my co-host, Dr. Frances Henshaw, who has, as always, organised a colleague of hers to join us to ensure that the ratio remains two experts to one idiot, which I believe is in line with WHO recommendations. Dr. Fran, who do we have with us today? And is there really a whole episode worth of material to talk about with blisters? Hello, Rod. Yes, today we have Rebecca Rushton. Rebecca is a podiatrist in Western Australia. And I must say, as a podiatrist myself, if you'd asked me that question a while ago, I'd have said, no, you can only do blisters for about two minutes. Um, But we had Rebecca on a webinar last year. And what she had to say about blisters was so interesting. And I learned so much that I thought we really need to share this with our broader audience. So welcome, Rebecca. How are you going, friend? It's lovely to have you on. And um, blisters, it just seems like such a simple thing, but they are a condition that really affects just about everybody at some point. So can you explain to us, how does a blister form? Well, the first, I guess it's easier to start with what a blister isn't. And a blister isn't a superficial to deep wear injury. And I think we're all conditioned to kind of think that's what it is because we think blisters are caused by rubbing. Something rubs the skin, it rubs through uh, the various layers of the epidermis and then you get a red raw patch and that's you know that's the blister base but um, blisters are actually caused by repetitive shear deformation which to most people doesn't mean much but um, shear is shear deformation is basically the given the soft tissues so and, and shear is driven by bone movement this is another thing that we don't think of. We're all concentrating on what's rubbing on the skin, but you don't actually need anything to rub across the skin for blisters to form. We need it, It's just a factor of the fact that the bones move back and forth within our foot with every step that we take. Ah, so the bones kind of shearing against the soft tissues and that causes a bit blister. Yeah, so the bones are moving back and forth. The skin is staying in stationary contact with the sock. Um, and everything in between has to stretch and distort. And the foot is designed to be able to handle a lot of it. It's normal for the soft tissues between skin and bone to shear with every step that we take. It happens, you know, all day long and our feet can deal with a lot of it. But uh, there comes a point where we get a mechanical fatigue within the epidermis, particularly or specifically at the stratum spinosum. Um, it just kind of gives up the ghost because it's just had a bit too much. And so we get these little tears between cells and that gets that that injury site gets bigger and bigger it creates a void fluid fills that area it takes up to two hours for the blister to fully fill um and yeah that's that's how it happens am i to read from what you're saying um rebecca that the call's coming from inside the house it's inside us is what's causing it so the firm new heel section of the shoe that's rubbed pushed up against my heel where i'm going to get a blister is stopping what would normally happen when I wear my old shoes and things move around a bit. And so from the inside, it's pushing in. Is that what's happening? Is that why it happens with new shoes? Well, with new shoes, it's just the fact that everything's a bit more stiff and rigid. So there's a bit less give in them. There's less give. So when the bone pushes up, instead of the shoe giving a bit, it, it creates this friction that creates the blister from within. Well, at the back of the heel, it's to do with, um, you know, the, the, 
the heel depresses into the cushioned insole of the shoe and then the Achilles tendon pulls it up when we're in propulsion. So that heel bone, so the, the, what's what should happen is the sock and the shoe should stay stuck together and the skin and the sock should stay stuck together, but the bone is still moving up and down at the back, uh, like within your foot. And so with a shoe that's a bit more rigid than you're used to, um, it just gets a bit stuck for a bit longer and so the shear deformation magnitude is higher. Because shear deformation magnitude, so the so the, the the magnitude of the give in the soft tissues um, is determined by pressure and also coefficient of friction. And coefficient of friction just is how slippery it is between those two surfaces. Well explained. Um, the next thing I'd like to ask you, because there's different types of blisters, isn't there? Because I'm a little bit clumsy and the other day I was trying to get something out of the oven and I sustained a blister on the back of my hand because I kind of missed the entrance. Um, so this is a very different ball game. Can you explain the difference between a blister that's caused by a high temperature burn and a blister that's caused by um, what you've just described? Friction. Well, yeah, so friction blisters we've just been talking about and a burn blister, the, the main difference there is it's a bit deeper. It goes into the dermis. So um, it's a second-degree burn and anything that causes – a burn that causes a blister is a second-degree burn and the level of it isn't within the epidermis uh, or in the stratum spinosum is actually a bit deeper down into the dermis. That's the main difference and, of course, the cause. Yeah. Okay, so they're very different and I think we just need to make that differentiation that we're, what we're really talking about today is the friction blisters. Hmm. So obviously they're um, treatable, but often it's easier to prevent things than to treat them. How do you prevent hmm. a, fl- a friction blister? Yeah, this is what I spend all my time doing. I go to ultra marathon races where they're running for six days and like the, challenge, the challenge is to, you know, most people get blisters there. And the challenge is to prevent them and um, and treat them, obviously. So when it comes to prevention, there's there's actually quite a few things that we can do. And I might just go through this methodically. So um, we can reduce the number of shear cycles, but that just means that people run less. So no one's going to be happy with that. We, we want to do what we want to do. Um, so just reducing the actual repetition of it is not ideal. We can increase the skin's resilience to this shear deformation. And the way we do that is not by putting things on the skin. It's actually by training. It's actually by subjecting the skin to the forces that threaten to damage it. And that's what training's all about. As you increase your training, um, the skin actually changes the, there's um, actual physical changes, structural changes within the skin to make it more resistance, resistant to that mechanical fatigue. But that can only go so far. So it's not like if you get blisters, you just have to, you know, train harder or longer or you're training, there was some training error. It's more about your particular makeup is such that the threshold is a little bit lower. Mm. Um, other things that we can do is we can reduce the bone movement. Now, because shear is driven by bone movement, um, we this is completely, even by podiatrists who specialise in bi- the biomechanics of feet, even podiatrists don't understand, don't recognise it, don't know about it. But um, if we can change the way the bones move, so for the back of heel blister, we're trying to reduce the movement of the heel bone at the back of the shoe. Um, we could do that with like heel lifts or calf stretches, for example. Uh, we can, if you've got flat feet, your foot hits the ground, 
the forefoot slides forward or the bones of the forefoot slide forward while the skin's remaining stationary, of course, we could reduce that. We could use orthotics or arch supports or all sorts of things to reduce the amount of forward motion of the metatarsal heads. So that's bone movement. We can use materials to absorb shear deformation. So this is things like Spenko insoles. Spenko and Poron have been used in really early blister studies and uh, Poron was found to be a little bit helpful, but Spenko much more, Spenko just being neoprene. Um, And also, not that this has been researched, but the gel... Um, of gel toe protectors that absorbs heaps of shear like so if you put one over your toe they're just the bee's knees for preventing toe blisters and especially you know that common little one on the outer little toe have a gel toe sleeve in your um in your purse and you know you never know when the need might arise add, add that to the arsenal of things that we yes, right. yeah, put it in your golf bag <laughs> i've used those they're very good <laughs> And we can spread shear load. Now, this is where taping comes in. So a lot of people think that taping works by stopping things rubbing the skin, but we've just demonstrated that it's not about rubbing the skin. And if I have a bit of tape across here and I do this, all as in I'm moving my fingertip back and forth on the back of my hand again, uh, the shear deformation still happens in those soft tissues. So taping which is our go-to as podiatrists and for blister prevention, is not the be-all and end-all. And in fact, it really only provides a little bit of blister prevention power. Um, in fact, the way that I think it works is it spreads the shear load. So if you use a rigid tape right across, let's say, the ball of your foot, instead of the peak shear being at that discrete location, like at a bony prominence, like let's say a metatarsal head, because the tape is rigid, it's pulling on that that whole surface area of skin. So we're spreading the shear load, but we're reducing it per unit area at that at that discrete location where it's highest. So that's how tape works and adhesive things that stick on the skin. And the last thing that we can do that we've kind of touched on is we can reduce friction force. And friction force is the combination of pressure and coefficient of friction. So pressure, we use things like um, donut pads. Uh, we can use orthotics to reduce pressure, heel lifts, um, toe props. And we can also, the other part of reducing friction force is reducing the coefficient of friction. And that is just using stuff that makes things slippery. So lubricants, for example, uh, interestingly, there's been absolutely no research on how lubricants reduce blisters, uh, but it, you know, you put Vaseline on the back of your hand and do this finger thing, it's going to slip and slide before uh, shear deformation magnitudes can really build to any degree. So there's tons of ways that we can reduce, that we can prevent blisters, Um and I think as, well, p- from my profession's point of view, we just need to think about it logically. We have to understand the cause and then just go through. I, with every blister I face, I go through all of those factors and think, how can I reduce bone movement? How can I absorb shear? How can I spread shear load? How can I reduce friction force? Before we come to treatment and the who we might be talking to about blisters, you mentioned something about training there, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Is that what this callus on my hand is from years of bike riding as a kid? Is that trained the skin to harden up? Is that what a callus is, a trained area of 
Skin yeah, is uh, well, different? yeah, in a way. So blisters and calluses are caused by the same forces. They're both caused by repetitive shear deformation. Calluses are the chronic manifestation. So it's where the skin has the chance to adapt to that load and it changes structurally. That's the thickened corneum. Um, and there's also changes lower down, like in the um, in the dermis and the epidermis. Uh, so calluses are the chronic manifestation. Blisters are the acute manifestation where shear load increases too fast, too quick, um, and the skin doesn't have a chance to adapt, and so you get that mechanical fatigue, which is the tear between skin cells. Mm, calluses are amazing. I haven't ridden a bike for 40 years. I've still got this callus wow. on my hand from riding almost 24 i tell you what I think is amazing. I think Rebecca's knowledge of skin is yeah, amazing. Because I, I've, spent, I've spent the last 20-odd years looking at holes in skin, yeah. so I don't actually need to know that much about skin because most of my people don't have any um, in the bit that I'm looking at. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. Obviously, I, I work for Convitec and we're a wound dressing company. Is there any place for dressings in the prevention of uh, blisters, Rebecca, or are they more on the treatment side? Well, when it comes to the people that I see, healing isn't the issue. It's the actually stopping the blister-causing forces. So um, <clears throat> we kind of we're not so focused on the dressing side of things. Uh, can dressings help in prevention? Well, they can a little bit in that you know, like how I was talking about tape, it spreads the sheer load. So even like a band aid over a blister-prone area, it's going to pad it so reduce pressure a tiny little bit. And it might spread shear load a tiny little bit. It certainly will reduce any abrasive damage, but again, that's not blisters. Uh, so yeah, a lot of people get away with just literally a bit of a dressing over a blister prone area. But if you're particularly athletic or blister prone, you have to go way, way deeper than that. Yeah. I think you've really articulated that very well. Now, my next question is quite simple to pop. Or not to pop. <laughs> this whole YouTube channel's devoted to this stuff, isn't there? <laughs> Are they doing the right yeah, thing? Yes, yeah, yeah, it's probably mine. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, the yes and no, it really depends. And there's no across the board answer. Of course, you have to consider your circumstances. If you're immunocompromised um, or, you know, diabetic with peripheral neuropathy or something like that, it would be really unwise to. But um, at the races I go to, let's say they get a blister on day two, um, they've got another four days of running. It's going to pop on its own anyway. So I like to take the bull by the horns and lance it in a controlled environment and dress it up so that I know that it's not going to get infected. Because if it just pops in the shoe, that runner will just keep running because they're tough and um, it'll it, it's really prone to infection. Yeah, kindred spirit of yours, uh, friend. Oh, you know, get in there and pop, and work yeah. around with sharp instruments, and muck around with the skin. <laughs> just like yeah, you. it does. It does freak people out. <laughs> it's because she's a podiatrist. Yeah, it's exactly all like right. That. There's a there's a cruel streak in all of you. Isn't yeah. There? So there was actually a guideline, I, I believe, that came out about five years ago from the UK that gave a lot of advice on what to do for blisters because it is a really difficult thing because while something's got a roof on it the underneath is relatively safe and um, mm. infection proofed but mm. um, if for example you've got someone who's got a blister and they've got diabetes then you know you on the one hand you're like you want to keep their skin intact but on the other hand if they 
go and I don't know put their shoe on and then the shoe friction pops the blister Blister. they're more likely to get an infection so it it is one of those things that really has to be done on a case-by-case basis I think taking into consideration the the person that that you're actually dealing with so it's not a black and white thing so once the roof has come up off a blister Rebecca what do we do next? Uh, Well if so when we think about blisters, there's three stages to blisters. There's the blister where the roof is intact. There's the blister where the roof is torn but still kind of in place. And then there's the blister that is de-roofed. So blisters that are intact, notwithstanding the whole popping conversation, you leave him as he is and probably pop a, a, an island dressing over it just for a bit of protection. Mm-hmm. Or if it's on the back of your heel and you can wear thongs for the rest of the day or the whole weekend, then obviously that's okay. Just you got, you got to get rid of the blister-causing forces. So um, an intact blister is easy because it's closed, it's sterile, it's not going to get infected. Just don't do anything that's going to annoy it to tear it and you're right. A blister that is torn is, you know, we want to keep the roof in place. We want to kind of have that back over the blister base, uh, that raw blister base, but infection is a concern now. So it's it's got to have an antiseptic and an island dressing. That's all it needs. And, of course, reduce the blister-causing forces. And when it comes to the de-roof blister, this is the blister that obviously it's still open to infection, so it needs an antiseptic, but this is the blister that does well with the hydrocolloid dressing. Oh, I think we make those. What's a hydrocolloid dressing? (laughs) A hydrocolloid dressing is a uh, dressing that um, is quite stretchy and thin, and it's made from basically complex sugars that kind of break down into simple sugars into the, and they kind of melt into the uh, wound itself and help to clean it all up. And um, because they're very low profile, they're very good to fit round odd areas like uh, feet. People they think they, they making... really sort of give a great healing environment for that shallow um, wound, which is basically what a blister base is, a raw blister base. And people think you're just making fancy bands. I know. So we have this. That's pro- extraordinary. We have this product called Duoderm, and it's funny. I, I did a, a four day walk with a friend of mine who's also a podiatrist, and there was lots of people on this walk who were getting blisters, and I'm thinking. I'm never going to tell anyone I'm a podiatrist. <laughs> and, and, and so we got through to about the end of day two and then this woman had some like catastrophic blister. And my friend Jess, if Jess Knox, I'll never forgive you for this, um, said, I'm a podiatrist. <laughs> and then the floodgates opened. But luckily we had a lot of duoderm on us. So we were patching a lot of people up on that, dear, that dear. Um, trip. And it is really an effective thing mm. because it, you know, it's not like these big bulky bandages that then you can't start getting your walking boots on and things like that. So um, I found it very, very helpful. We don't really talk about our products very much, do we? But I have had first-hand experience of duoderm, <laughs> but possibly not anything else. Not because you wanted me. to, because you were forced to. <laughs> Rebecca, it sounds like all the advice you've just given there is completely ignored by the runners you're working with. Am I right about that? And what do you do with those people? And are they the people most prone to blisters? I imagine most of us get one or two blisters maybe 10 blisters over the course of a lifetime, something like that. But you're also about people who get repeated blisters. Are there dangers with that? And what do you do about people who are really prone to blisters because of the activities they're undertaking? Yeah, so um, the runners, it's hard to get people to uh, take blisters seriously. They think it's just sort of a you know little thing that 
bit of an inconvenience for a while. But these runners that run these multi-day ultra marathons, if anyone is going to take them seriously, it will be these guys. But even then, you'd be surprised. Um, part of the problem is the fact that they don't really understand what causes blisters. So they are focused on the rubbing cause and therefore they tape. However, they get a blister underneath the tape because it hasn't reduced the shear load enough. And so what they do is they just become accustomed to it. They wear them as a badge of honour and um, they just think that they're inevitable. But the, the, and so the challenge is educating them in the fact that blisters are 100% preventable. And also, not only that, when you treat a blister, you can put a dressing on it, but it can still be painful if you have to keep running on it, like, for example. But treatment shouldn't just be first aid. Treatment should also incorporate prevention because the prevention is the bit that reduces the shear load deformation. That's the bit that takes the pain away. So it's great. I go to this ultramarathon called the Australian Six Day Ultramarathon in Adelaide, and um, they've come. They've got to know me, and of course, <laughs> she's I've, that crazy I've, woman who's always I've, about the I've, blisters. I've, she's here again. Is that what they say? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I'm fixing their blisters, and they can see that it's making a big difference. And the value of this um, race is they they run around a 1.5 k loop, and so they have access to me every 1.5 k's, as opposed to other races I've been to where you just see them after 40 k's or 100 k's. Right. Well. There's carnage. It's all been done, and it's it's more difficult to have an impact. Um, but yes, so they get to see that. Well, you really can prevent blisters. Well, you really can take the pain out of blisters once they do form. But I like to rather than just do stuff at the race. I like to educate beforehand. So this ultra marathon is in Adelaide in October, I think, and I've started on their Facebook group already, giving them education. So every fortnight and later on every week, we chat about a particular aspect of blisters. So, yeah, once you get me started on blisters, we can be here for weeks. <laughs> I, I, like I, yeah, I think I think Convitec <laughs> needs to have a duoderm stall at this ultra marathon. So, Rebecca, you actually have um, your own website. Can you just uh, let our listeners know about that in case people want some more resources? Yeah, it's blister-prevention.com. And it's a website, not so much aimed at professionals, but more just your, your lay person. So in that way, it's quite easy to understand. Um, yeah, the, I mean, it's been going since 2012. So there's really a bunch of stuff on there. Yeah, just um, search whatever it is that you need to, we'll put to a know link, about. Put a link in the show notes for people as well. Excellent. And it's funny, I was just thinking about it. M many, many years ago, I used to do a bit of work with the military and uh, blisters were a huge problem there. And they actually yeah. probably cost a lot of money in terms of lost manpower because yeah. when people get nasty blisters from army boots, they actually can't do the job, can they? So I think blisters have more serious consequences than people like me who is an amateur weekend rambler actually think. So it probably is something that we could do with shining a light on a little bit more. Yeah. Absolutely. And the military is where there's been the, a fair amount of the research done. Um, and a podiatrist in America, Doug Ritchie, and I have just had a couple of papers approved to be published in the Journal of Athletic Training where uh, we use a lot of uh, the research from military situations because obviously they've got a captive sort of um, 
experimental group yes and they can standardize and be in control of everything that happens there so yeah a lot of what we do know about blisters is from the military uh but it is generally from a fair while ago uh, 1990s uh even before that yeah not not much in the 2000s i'm afraid deep in the blister weeds right <laughs> really oh, deep yeah. in the blizzard i want to go back to the south australian event quickly i've got three questions about it one are you saying that there's a 1.5 kilometer track and these people run around it for six days is that what you're yes, saying yes that's what i'm saying they have a tent on the it's like oh it's it's a park you won't uh, do you know king's park in perth i do yeah, it's like a kind of that situation. So it's a lovely park situation. The public all come on the weekend and do do their thing. So there's all people all around. It's not an athletic track. It's just a, a walking track, basically. That's a test it's, of endurance and tedium, is it not? <laughs> yeah, it is to a degree, but it's, it would be worse on an actual athletic track. Uh, indeed. Secondly, very creatively named that event, it sounds like to me, the six-day Australian Supermarathon. There's no, no second-guessing what it is. But more importantly, to touch on what you were just talking about, is that a potential opportunity for research? You're there it's, six days. I would imagine, again, you've got that captive audience actually mm. in the arena doing the thing. I would have thought that could be a really rich opportunity for research. It really would be. I'm not the research type, but I would love to actually have that happen at that race because I'm sure I could, you know, help in the logistics of it all. So if anyone out there is interested, let's talk. Um and yeah, I mean, it's a great race and there, there's a six day event, a 72 hour, a 48 hour and a 24 hour. So, um, I have to say it sounds dreadful, but <laughs> I'm a bit of a, the beginners one, yeah, Fran, the 24 hour. I'm, I'm a bit of a couch potato <laughs> and I get bored very easily. I'd be saying I've seen this circuit before and yeah, uh, but look, probably... there's koalas and all oh. turtles and all sorts of things on the track and there's the general public and kids having fun and frisbees and all sorts. So you'll they, have fun. Do they stop off? And get Uber Eats and things like that because that's that you might... what you like. In fact, they they the the race itself lays on all this food. They Ooh. just are eating continuously. These people, these runners. I bet they're not fat though. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. They're doing it uh, the right way. Just intriguing stuff, Rebecca. Just and this is completely unreal. Why do people run ultra marathons? Is that not an it's an unusual human behaviour? Is it not? There's got to be something a little bit different about you to want to do that. You'd be surprised that a lot of runners run for their mental health. So a lot run, obviously, for their physical health. Um, and ultra runners are a special breed because they just have this innate um, toughness and grit to be able to grind things out and, you know, focus on what they want to focus on so that they're not focused on, like, blisters, for example. Um, but, yeah, it's a really inclusive group of people it's a really happy environment. it's not sort of competitive at all and the people that run it you'd be surprised they don't necessarily look particularly athletic um they just have this ability just to start running and keep running and in fact there's a lot of walking in ultra marathon a lot of walking oh, i could probably do a bit of that remember was it cliff young that won the city of melbourne Six, the yes. potato farmer in his gumboots, 60-something years of age. I it was an extraordinary. Mm. And there was the Greek guy, Giannis. I can't remember his name. Giannis, he was the specialist. He was the yes. the king of the ultramarathons. I remember Cliffy just shuffled his way to the finish line and 
Tyler was an amazing yeah. story. So you're right. Yeah, and he did not look particularly yeah. athletic. It's like the hair and the tortoise that Kind one. of, yeah. yeah. He just he just didn't stop. It's a rem- it's an remarkable mindset. Nothing to do with blisters, of course, or something to do with blisters in as much as they just ignore them. You probably don't yeah. like that. But they just get started and they just keep going. Yeah, yeah, remarkable. I think I think we've exhausted the topic of blisters for our purposes, Fran. I don't think Rebecca's gonna stop now. I don't think she's satisfied <laughs> the blister world is solved, but have we got anything else for Rebecca before we let her go? Oh look, this has been fascinating. I'm actually more fascinated about people that want to so walk around a one and a half kilometre circuit for a week but hey ho or even run around it that's even more bizarre um, but no I think Rebecca you've given us an amazing insight into friction blisters and I think that by highlighting this firstly we've got some really common sense advice for people who can use that to prevent them and we've got a good idea of how to treat them as well so thank you very much you're welcome. Thanks for having me. One question, sorry, that I should have asked earlier, Rebecca. I forgot to ask. Mm. Our target audience is people who deal with people who are in the medical field, cl- clinicians, nurses, those sorts of people. Is there anything they should look for in blisters if a patient comes in? What should our our target, our mythical target nurse who works in a really wide-ranging kind of area which encounters all sorts of things, anything those people really need to know about blisters to look for where something may be more serious than just a blister? Um, I, think, I think the most... Uh, helpful thing to think about would be always think of the cause. So a lot of nurses might be um, always focused on the healing. Mm. To help the healing, you do have to address the cause. So you've got to reduce the blister-causing forces. That is, you've got to reduce the um, shear that's occurring in the soft tissues. But also um, when there's a skin tear, um, think don't think that something is necessarily rubbing the skin. A skin tear is a shear-related skin injury. It's not a rubbing injury. Mm-hmm. So remember how we talked about the, um, the there's two events when something rubs. There's the, the event where there's no relative movement and then there's the event where there is relative movement. Um, I think we focus too much on the fact that there is relative movement. What you've got to reduce is the shear. Um, a, if you see a lesion, like a skin tear, where the corneum is still there but sort of displaced, it's not a superficial to deep wear injury. Otherwise, the corneum wouldn't be there. It's so the think about how the bone is mm. moving relative to the skin surface. So you've got to reduce the friction level there. You've got to make something more slippery or make it press less, compress less. Um, yeah, don't think rubbing, think sheer. Go to blister-prevention.com. Go there, and I'm sure there's plenty of tips for people who are in the field. Thank you, Rebecca. It's been fabulous to talk. Really appreciate you taking the time. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Dr. Fran, as always. Thanks, Rod. See you on the track. Yes. <laughs> for six days. I'm warming up as we speak. <laughs> and that's it for this episode. We'll be back with The Wound Doctors next time. <laughs>